Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, and we are on episode number 289. Today's topic is Hart's Green New Deal. If you have any comments or questions about this content, please email info at theclimatereport.net. And if you would like to suggest a topic or invite me to speak to your group, please email info at theclimatereport.net. So what is the Climate Report all about? The Climate Report is about how to solve the problem of climate change. Now, in order to solve the problem, we have to understand the true nature of the problem. We have to understand where we are and where we would like to go. We need to understand what are the obstacles in our way to getting where we want to go. We want to know who is on our side and we want to know who is standing in the way. So I wish I could tell you that most environmentalists and climate activists are getting it right, but I'm afraid to say that most environmentalists I feel are getting it wrong. Most climate activists are getting it wrong, at least those who position themselves as climate activists. And I like to say there's, there's two types of environmentalists. There's the fake ones and there's the real ones. The fake ones are trying to sell you something and the real ones just want to solve the problem. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I believe most environmentalists have been fooled and misled by the fake environmentalists. So the fake environmentalists are the ones who just want to sell you something. They're ones who want to make money off of positioning themselves as the solution to our problems. These are the Bill Gates of the world. These are the Michael Bloombergs of the world. These are the Richard Bransons of the world. And all of their hangers-on. And I'm also afraid to tell you, or sorry to tell you, that you know, people like Al Gore, Bill McKibben, and Naomi Klein, these are people who have made contributions in the past, and I have learned from these people. I have learned from Al Gore. I have learned from Bill McKibben. I have learned from Naomi Klein. But each one of these people has taken a wrong turn and they've bought into green capitalism. They have bought into something where you can save the planet and make lots and lots of money at the same time. So, you you know, you don't change Wall Street. Wall Street changes you. So Bill McKibben recently wrote an article that said the Pentagon has an outsized role to play in solving the climate problem. And the reason he gave is that there are a lot of people who are not willing to listen to science, but they are willing to listen to the Pentagon. Well, at some point, Bill McKibben lost his way. If he thinks the Pentagon is going to do anything to solve the climate change problem, uh, he's sorely mistaken, and he has been misled, and he has been bought by Wall Street and by the uh, NGOs, the nonprofit organizations that provide funding to groups like him, but they provide funding for the purpose of neutralizing people. So Al Gore has been neutralized by Wall Street, Bill McKibben has been neutralized by Wall Street, and Naomi Klein is kind of going in that direction. And I hope they come back around, but we'll just have to see. But here's what the fake climate activists really don't understand or want to understand. They don't understand nature. They don't understand the role and importance of pollinators. They don't understand the role and the importance of trees. 
They don't understand the role and importance of native plants or birds. They don't understand the role and importance of streams and waterways. They don't understand the water cycle. And I'm not saying Al Gore, Bill McKibben, and Naomi Klein are people who don't understand these things. I'm saying they've been bought by people, by fake environmentalists who are just hawking solutions that are going to end up not being the solution. And we don't, so what we don't want to happen is we don't want to get 10 years down the road and find out that we've been listening to the, to the wrong people. We don't want to get 10 years down the road and find out that we've been putting our confidence in the wrong people. And we don't want to put our confidence in Wall Street. We don't want to put our confidence in people who just want to sell solar panels or sell windmills or sell electric cars. By the way, I didn't mention that you know Elon Musk is just one of those Wall Street. I mean, he's in Silicon Valley, but he's funded by Wall Street. He feeds at the government trough. Elon Musk, who, who is the founder of Tesla that makes the cars and the batteries. This is somebody who feeds at the government trough he, and he doesn't understand nature and he doesn't understand the true nature of the problem. And it's like Upton Sinclair said, it's hard to get somebody to understand something when their salary depends on not understanding it. It's hard to get somebody to understand something when their business depends on not understanding it. So we need to be careful who we follow, careful who we believe, and we need to not follow those that are just trying to sell us something or those genuine and sincere people who have been bought by those who just want to sell us something. So let's get to the topic. Today's topic is Hart's Green New Deal, and I'm going to say Hart's Eco-Socialist Green New Deal. Now, I'm 57 years old. I'm a child of the Cold War, and I grew up, uh, I grew up hearing that socialism is bad and that you know, socialism is, the, is communism light and uh, communism is authoritarian and it's all about the Russians and the, uh, and the Chinese and they're bad. But you know, you've heard it said that feminism is the radical notion that women are people. In the same vein, socialism is the radical notion that we're all in this together. It's the radical notion that we need to care for each other and care for the earth. Otherwise, what do we have? And it's also, you know, socialism is a position that is willing to critique capitalism. It's like capitalism is extremely problematic. I mean, this is a system that wants to make unlimited use of limited resources. So, you know, you, can, you, can't, even, you, you can't even think clearly about what is capitalism. Like, what is capitalism anyway? Is capitalism the mom-and-pop grocery, or is it a, a, a chain grocery? Is capitalism the small local bank, or is it Goldman Sachs, or one of the big banks on Wall Street? Is capitalism the local hardware store, or is it a big box hardware store owned by hedge funds? Those are entirely different things. So here's one simple definition of socialism. Socialism is something that puts people and planet before profits and plutocrats. So if, you know, I like saying that, you know, we need to come down 
off of this ideology. We need to come down to earth and stop buying into all this ideology. American exceptionalism is an ideology, and the free market is an ideology. They are false ideologies. They are ideologies that do not serve us very well. So all I'm saying is that we need to rethink everything. If you're willing to join me on this journey and rethink everything, then we're in good shape. So I'm going to be reading from a document that I call Hart's Eco-Socialist Green New Deal. It's something that I, it, it's my version of the Green New Deal. It's like I'm borrowing heavily from DSA, D Democratic Socialists of America. I'm borrowing from their version of the Green New Deal. And I've got 10 items, including a preamble, transportation, food and farming. So it's like number one, preamble. Number two, transportation. Number three, food and farming. Number four, coal miners and, and all workers. You know, uh, is, this is Kentucky. Number five is about fracking. Number six is about mowing. Number seven is about petrochemical plants. Number eight is democratize utilities. Number nine is about tool and toy libraries. Number 10 is about just say no to extraction, manufacturing, and construction. Number 11 is survival is not for sale. And number 12 is how to pay for it. So let's start with item one, the preamble. We support an eco-socialist Green New Deal which puts people and planet before profits and plutocrats. Plutocrats are the really rich people that own and control everything. It says here, as per DSA's eco-socialist Green New Deal, we must warn all politicians that we will not accept a watered-down Green New Deal that they exploit as a mere electoral slogan. They will either fight for the radical Green New Deal that emerges from our coalition or be exposed as collaborators with the ecocidal elite who have no concern for our future. So one idea in this paragraph, we're dealing with number one, the preamble, one idea in this paragraph is we must, you know, the, this, the Green New Deal is not an electoral slogan. It's like, are you for the Green New Deal or against the Green New Deal? You know, my question is, what is the Green New Deal? A Green New Deal is not a law. It's not a policy. It is a conversation, and it is a, it is a deal. It is a contract. It is an arrangement. It is a completely new deal, and it is especially a completely new deal for people. It's a new deal for workers. It's a new deal for healthcare patients. It's a new deal for consumers. It is not business as usual. It is not green capitalism as if there is such a thing. Another idea here is that are you part, if you're a politician or a business person, whoever you are, are you part of the ecocidal elite? So ecocidal means killing ecosystems. So are you going to be part of the elite that just wants to kill our ecosystems? Are you part of the elite 
that just wants to destroy the life support systems that we all depend on to live? If you are that, then you will get no support from anybody who buys into this, notably DSA. So are you going to collaborate with all the wrong people or are you going to be with us? Are you going to be with the profiteers or the people? Are you going to be with the plutocrats or are you going to be with the planet that we all depend on for our life support? So this is mainly a warning to politicians that says we will not accept a watered down Green New Deal. We will not accept a state of affairs where you try to get our votes while being in bed with the Wall Street ecocidal elite. Let me say just a word about Wall Street. You know, the people who are listening to me, you know, you probably have stocks and you probably have a retirement plan. It is unfortunate that we have to depend on Wall Street for our retirement. Don't we want a different state of affairs? Insofar as Wall Street is ecocidal, don't we want a state of affairs where we don't have to have our money in, invested in companies that are ecocidal? Let's work toward a time where our financial security does not depend on ecocide. Item number two in Hart's Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, transportation. Our addiction to automobiles is no accident, nor is it the fault of the average American. It is the result of decades of federal spending at the behest of auto companies and oil companies who profit mightily when everyone must own a car in order to get around. Each automobile, on average, drains the family budget to the tune of $8,000 per year. Our city, state, and federal governments can easily change our transportation future by redirecting transportation funding to trains and buses, which shall be free at the point of service so as to maximize ridership. So let's talk about transportation. What do the ruling elites want us to think? The ruling elites want us to think that we have all these cars because of human nature, because we just can't help ourselves. They want us to think that we buy cars because we demand cars. It has nothing to do with what is supplied to us or what is provided to us. They want us to think that we have cars because of a free market. And they want us to think that we have cars because of some sort of democratic process where we elected President Eisenhower and President Eisenhower decided to build us a highway system. And we just continue to build on the highway system that President Eisenhower decided to get for us. That's not the way it happened. 
The head of General Motors, Alfred Sloan, made up a plan for our transportation system that involved lots and lots of highways, and the government adopted that plan. And if you think that's some sort of conspiracy theory, just look around you. It doesn't matter whether it was Alfred Sloan or somebody else. Somebody, somewhere along the way, decided that we were going to get around exclusively by automobile. Somebody, somewhere along the way, decided that almost all of us would have to own an automobile in order to get to work and get to the grocery and get to school, etc. Look at it from the standpoint of spending. Our transportation spending has been 100 to 1 in favor of automobile-related infrastructure, i.e. highways that you can drive your automobile on. There's been almost no spending on trains or buses. If there were spending on trains or buses, we would see more trains and we would see more buses. Haven't you noticed they're always tearing up the highway to build more lanes? Those lanes cost between 2 and $20 million per lane mile. If, an, if it's an existing highway, it costs between $2 million and $10 million per lane mile. If they're building a brand new highway, it costs between $5 million and $20 million per lane mile. So if you have a four-lane highway, one mile of that four-lane highway costs about $40 million to build. Every mile is about $40 million to build. And then when the highway gets a little bit congested, there they go again, tearing up the highway to widen the highway, widen the entrance ramps, widen the exit ramps. Millions and millions of dollars per lane mile. Hey, I know. How about we not do that? How about we take the same money and spend it on buses and bus stations and trains and train stations? That way, more people would start riding buses and trains. But right now, it's not even a choice. So our city, state, and federal governments could, at any point in time, change our transportation future by deciding to spend money on buses and bus stations and trains and train stations. They're already spending a lot of money on transportation. Just redirect that so that we're spending it overwhelmingly on sustainable transportation instead of spending it overwhelmingly on your six-passenger automobile, which typically carries one person. The transportation system that we have is a result of choices, not forces. We need to change to a transportation system that works for people and planet instead of a transportation system that is built around the needs and interests of plutocrats. Item number three in Hart's Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, food and farming. The average bite of food travels 1,500 miles before it reaches our plates. 
This system is designed for cheap production and long shelf life, but is bad for our health. It is profitable for food monopolies, but bad for our carbon output, our water quality, and our pollinators. Currently, less than 1% of our food is grown locally, and yet we are surrounded by the country's most fertile ground, as well as abundant rainfall. We should make it easy for local farmers to grow tasty, nutritious food and sell it locally. We should connect aspiring farmers with mentors and markets. We should make it easy for aspiring farmers to access usable land. The city owns an abundance of usable land, but gaining access is elusive and complicated. A well-funded land trust could serve to streamline access to city-owned land. So one major concept in this paragraph is we have a food system that is designed by and for plutocrats. The food system is designed by and for plutocrats to make money. When, if you wonder what a plutocrat is, just think it's the richest person. It's the richest group of people in society, and it's also the richest person in every single industry. So there are plutocrats that, run, that, that own lots of land and, and are farmers, so to speak. There are plutocrats that own food distribution systems and trucking companies. There are plutocrats that own grocery stores. There are grocery store chains. There are plutocrats that own construction companies that always want to build something else. And I'm saying, stop. Let's think about this. What would a food system look like if the purpose was to grow healthy, tasty, nutritious, local food? What would that even look like? Less than 1% of the food we eat is grown locally or regionally. That needs to change. One of the main things that needs to change is something called land reform. Land needs to be redistributed to people who are going to make better use of it than what we've got going on now. Land needs to be redistributed to people who will grow, who will sell most of their product locally or regionally. We need to come alongside aspiring farmers and help them get the training they need and we need to introduce them to markets. One benefit is that if we do this, we're going to have small, local, organic, biologically diverse farms. As it is now, most farming, most agriculture is, is, is devastating to the natural environment and it's, and it's harmful to human health. Most concentrated animal feeding operations just spew out lots and lots of pathogens that make people sick, lots and lots of toxic chemicals that are harmful to people's health. We're talking about animal cruelty. We're talking about decimating pollinator populations. We're talking about creating an environment that's bad for bees, butterflies, and birds. It doesn't have to be that way, and it needs 
to change. So if I'm a politician, if you're a politician, what does it look like to create a system where we can grow our food locally instead of this monstrosity? You know, one thing that we need is, is, is we need democratic mechanisms that can stop our locality and our region from being dominated by out-of-town, out-of-state investors and landlords and monopoly chain stores. What would it look like if our state, local, and regional economic development authorities were not constantly pimping us out to the highest bidder? And honestly, one thing we need to do to make all this happen is to, is to lower people's cost of living. We need a universal basic income so that people can have something to live on without pimping themselves out to the worst companies in the world. We need Medicare for all so that people's health care is not tied to their employment, so that they don't have to work for the worst companies in the world in order to have health insurance. We need strong collective bargaining. You know, there's a lot of social services that we could do away with, that we wouldn't need if people could collectively bargain with their employer. As it is, employers are allowed to, you know, they're, they're allowed to do union busting through, you know, working with independent contractors instead of employees by subcontracting out work so that two people might be working side by side, but they have two different employers. That's how you divide and conquer the workforce. But the workforce needs to be able to collectively bargain with their employers. What would it look like if our politicians understood NAFTA? What would it look like if the average citizen understood NAFTA and knew that, for one thing, it's not inevitable. It's not inevitable that we should ship all of our jobs to China and Mexico. NAFTA could be renegotiated so that we don't, you know, we don't have to do business with companies that have no environmental standards, no labor standards, no health and safety standards. We could redo NAFTA so that, yeah, you can go set up shop in another country just so they have a minimum wage that's appropriate to that country, just so their workers are allowed to collectively bargain. But we don't have that. That was no part of NAFTA and it's no part of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that you know, Obama couldn't push through, but Biden is frothing at the mouth, waiting to sign the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it's great for Wall Street. It's bad for us, but it's great for Wall Street. Just about out of time. If you want to give me comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. Or if you want me to speak to your group via Zoom or otherwise. In a subsequent episode, we're going to talk about fracking, we're going to talk about coal mining, we're going to talk about mowing, we're going to talk about petrochemical plants, we're going to talk about how to democratize our utilities, we're going to talk about something called tool and toy libraries, we're going to say talk about how we should just say no to constant extraction, manufacturing, and construction, and we're going to talk about how survival is not for sale, and we're going to talk about how to pay for it. Hope you'll join me. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day. 
Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 290. Today's topic is Hart's Eco-Socialist Green New Deal. So we're going to talk about 12 ideas that I have in relation to eco-socialism. This emerges from the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, Green New Deal, eco-socialists. So I've used the word socialist about six times already, and the word socialist jars the sensitive ears of Americans, and that used to include me. So let's deal with the idea of socialism. To me, it's common sense. So uh, we've been trained since we were knee-high to a grasshopper to believe that, a, that socialism is a threat to our way of life. But to me, socialism is the most common sense thing in the world. I like saying socialism is the radical notion that we're all in this together. In many respects, we're all in this together. John F. Kennedy said, in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future and we are all mortal. Now, did John F. Kennedy walk the talk? Probably not, but it's good rhetoric and it's true rhetoric that we are all in this together, we all breathe the same air, we all drink the same water, and we are being stolen from by a class of people who have the power to do so. And I call this stealing the commons. The idea of stealing the commons goes back to the phrase enclosure of the commons, which is typically associated with England in the 1600s, but the very same thing was happening at the very same time on the North American continent. And it has to do with taking the common property of the community and converting it into private property, taking that which should have been a common heritage for everybody and turning it into private profit for a few. Specifically, what they did at the time was to take the forests which had been used for hunting and fishing, and the, the forests that had been used for hunting, the waterways that had been used for fishing, the meadows that had been used for grazing, for it could, have been, could be used for anybody, and then they said, oh, we're going to put fences here, and we're going to say this is private property, and we're going to grow sheep on it, because we're going to grow sheep for wool because now all of a sudden there is a worldwide there is a you know worldwide market for wool or at least an international market for wool so all of a sudden you had these worldwide commodities markets and that changed the way the land was used and it caused the people to be driven off of the common land and into the cities where they could provide cheap labor and the idea is taking that which belonged to everybody and concentrating it into the hands of, of a few. So I'm going to talk about stealing the commons as if it, to include any type of transfer of wealth from the many to the few. So the following is a short list of ways in which the few are continuing to steal the commons from the many. When pollution causes our air quality to go down for the sake of some industry, which, is, which it always is, then that's a transfer of wealth from the many to the few. When industry is allowed to pollute our waterways, that's a transfer of wealth from the many to the few. 
when industry is allowed to decimate our pollinator populations. That's a transfer of wealth from the many to the few. When we pay way too much for defense so that weapons contractors can make money, that's a transfer of wealth from the many to the few. When industry is allowed to pollute our oceans and to overfish in our oceans, that's a transfer of wealth from the many to the few. So socialism is the uh, down-to-earth, common-sense notion that we shouldn't be using the power of the state to transfer wealth from the many to the few. In that sense, socialism is in an important sense conservative. It's like, I got your conservative right here. It's like I was conservative in the traditional sense for most of my life. Now that I'm a socialist, I'm a real conservative because it's like, I got your conservative right here. I want to conserve everything that's important. I want to conserve our natural heritage. I want to conserve the quality of our waters. I want to conserve our forests for future generations. I want to conserve everything that matters in terms of community resources and the ability to have a community. I want to conserve everything that matters in terms of having enough time for our families instead of all of that being taken from, from the many to the few. That's socialism when you don't want the power of the state to steal that which we the people are entitled to clean air, clean water, enough time for our families, the right to not have all of the value of our labor being extracted from us. So all I'm saying is that socialism is common sense, and socialism is in many important respects conservative. If you want to know what conservatism really is, then look at how so-called conservatives, including Democrats, are changing the world really, really fast, really, really radically. The real radicals are the conservatives in that they want to change the world really, really fast. Faster, so fast that most of us don't know what's going on, don't know what hit us. We don't know how fast our common heritage is being stolen and squandered. So now that we've established that socialism is common sense, let's look at Hart's eco-socialist Green New Deal. The first few items are about petrochemical, about fossil fuels. Fracking is about fossil fuels. Coal mining is about fossil fuels. Petrochemical plants are about fossil fuels. And item number seven is just say no to constant extraction, manufacturing, and construction. So let's talk about fracking. It says here, fracking is an unmitigated disaster for climate, for air quality, for water quality, and for human health. We should immediately ban fracking at the state and local level, awaiting a federal ban. A ban. The city of Louisville, which obtains its drinking water from the Ohio River, should demand a federal ban on fracking in the entire Ohio River Valley. So fracking refers to hydraulic fracturing. It's a technique where, okay, we got most of the oil in the traditional sense drilling straight down. So what we're going to do now is we're going to drill horizontally and we're going to, you know, fill the ground with fluid and then cause an explosion. And then uh, it, it, it causes a release of oil and natural gas 
from these shale formations and then they extract oil and gas from the ground that way. It's a technology that is about 20 or 25 years old. It is an ecological catastrophe. It's bad for our air, it's bad for our water, it's bad for our health, it's going to take away, it, it, it requires, you know, billions of gallons, billions with a B, billions of gallons of water are taken out of the water supply every day in America. Fracking is an unmitigated disaster. And so how is this stealing the commons? Well, it's, it, it pollutes the water. That's stealing the commons. That's stealing our common heritage. That is stealing the heritage to which the, we have a right. By heritage, I mean that which we have inherited from previous generations. That which we have inherited from nature is being squandered by the people that want to do fracking and by the people like the politicians that benefit from the fracking industry. So what should happen is that the city of Louisville should be screaming at the top of its lungs to prevent fracking upstream because we get our water from the Ohio River. So we were going to talk about fracking. Let's talk about coal miners next. More on fossil fuels. So coal miners, uh, Kentucky is a big coal mining state. Historically it was the leading producer of coal. And a lot of people got their jobs from coal mining. And a lot of coal miners have been bitter about the decline of the coal industry. But what we need is not more coal. We need to, relieve, we, we need to provide guaranteed jobs for people in the coal industry. So coal mining is an industry that is fundamentally destructive. The coal industry is destructive because it has provided fuel for an economy that is fundamentally destructive. We have an economy that's based on production and consumption. Production and consumption is a bad way to measure the health or the vitality of an economy. If we go to work every day to produce something, and if we come home at the end of the day to consume something, that is not a way to do an economy because it has almost nothing to do with human well-being. So what we need is an economy not based on production and consumption, but we should have a, uh, an economy that is based on care and freedom. What if the most important things we had to do every day as people, as individuals, and as a community was to care for what we already have? We want to not only care for our forests and our waterways and our air, but we want to care for each other. Instead, what we have is this economy where we're supposed to produce, produce, produce. And the more we produce, the more gross domestic product goes up. And the more gross domestic product goes up, the, the more we supposedly have a healthy economy. That, all that is, is fraudulent. It's fraudulent accounting. It is counting all the wrong things. What if instead we had an economy that's based on caring for nature and caring for each other? So we want, what we want to do is care for nature in the form of our forests, our waterways, and our landscapes, uh, because our landscapes impact nature, our, imp our landscapes impact water, our landscapes impact pollinators. So we want to care for nature, we want to care for people. We want to care for people that are elderly, sick, 
young, disabled. We want to care for people who are learners. In other words, students. We want to care for people who are immigrants. And we want to care for our caregivers. We want to make sure that our caregivers have what they need to render proper care. And we not only want to care for nature and each other, but we want to care for our vital systems. Our vital systems include the farms that produce our food, our waterways that produce our water that will deliver us clean water if we will let them. We want to care for our transportation systems. We want to care for our communication systems and we want to care for our communities. Imagine if we went to work every day to care for our vital systems, our natural surroundings, and each other. The point is that if we want to give coal miners productive work to do, there's plenty of productive work to go around. We should have guaranteed jobs that are based on caring for nature, for each other, and our vital systems. So it says here under coal miners uh, in my little outline of Eco-Socialist Green New Deal recommendations, we support a transition uh, for Kentucky's coal miners and related workers. We support a federal jobs guarantee for all workers, including former coal, oil, and gas workers. We also support free public college and trade school for all workers. An eco-socialist Green New Deal would also include an abundance of socially beneficial jobs, including energy efficiency retrofitting for buildings and homes, construction of train systems, organic farming, and ecological forestry, just to name a few. The idea that we have to go to work every day and produce, produce, produce for some, because it makes a profit for somebody is ludicrous, counterproductive, and in fact, destructive. We don't have to have an economy that's arranged that way and it needs to change fast. Another thing we need to look at here in the Ohio Valley is petrochemical plants. So the, the petrochemicals means you take oil and natural gas and turn it into products like plastic and styrofoam. You know, we can have plastic and styrofoam in moderation, but we don't have anything close to moderation because our decisions are made by the profit motive instead of our decisions being made by the need to care for, for each other, for nature, and for our vital systems. So the Appalachian Storage Hub is this petrochemical complex that is a planned $400 billion petrochemical complex that promises to turn the Ohio River Valley into Cancer Valley, just as parts of Louisiana and Texas became known as Cancer Alley. So why do we want this? Well, we don't want it. We, the people, do not want this. And it is not common sense for this to go in, but it, the profit motive is in charge of making this go in. The profit motive and how corrupt profiteers are, have bought our corrupt politicians. And so petrochemical plants are another example of stealing the commons. They're going to require lots and lots of roads, it's going to require lots and lots of fracking. They're going to have these cracker plants that pollute the air and pollute the water. 
So they're taking our clean air, they're taking our clean water, and they're turning it into profit. It is very short-sighted. It only benefits a very, very few people, and it serves to, do, to concentrate wealth into the hands of a few, which is the last thing we need to be doing, is to, concentrate, is to be concentrating more wealth into the hands of a few. Now, the next item here is just say no to constant extraction, manufacturing, and, <coughs> and construction. Here's what I wrote. Just say no to timber harvesting on public lands because that's an extraction of wealth from the many to the few. Say no to mining on public lands because that's an extraction of wealth from the many to the few. It, it's our public lands. We need to at least charge fair rent. But I say just say no, because half of our economy could go away and we would never miss it. Because half of our economy has nothing to do with delivering to us the goods and services that we need. Half of our economy has a great deal more to do with making profits for the very few and concentrating power and wealth into the very few hands. Next thing it says is... Uh, Reduce the manufacture of new cars by 90%. Worldwide, I mean, 17 million cars per year is about what we're churning out in the United States. 65 million cars per year worldwide. It is insane for us to be manufacturing the, that many new cars per year. We need to reduce that by 90% because that represents an, an extraction of wealth. It represents profit for a few profiteers, such as the auto companies and the oil companies. And it represents a theft of our time, because if you have to have a car to get around, the average car costs uh, about $8,000 a year to own and operate. We don't have to have a, a transportation system in which almost everybody needs a car to get around. We don't have to have that. We have that because it was chosen for us by the big oil companies and the big auto companies. We need to move to a system where we get most of our time back. We need to move to a system where we get most of our money back or where you don't have to have so much money just to live. So we need to reduce the manufacture of new cars by 90%. We need to reduce new planes, the manufacture of new planes by 90%. We need to reduce air travel by 90% because almost all, you know, 90% of air travel has nothing to do with the well-being of the average person. We've all had occasion to go somewhere to see family or friends, but that's not what 90% of air travel is. 90% of air travel is corporate executives going here and there, here and there, uh, helping their employers take over the world. Air you know, 90% of air travel is like you know, military. Military and big companies is what you know, most air travel is. Plus, any air travel that is transcontinental shouldn't be necessary. To the extent that we need transcontinental travel, which we might not need if we weren't enslaved to multinational corporations, but to the extent that we need transcontinental travel, we could do that by train and not have to have an airplane to go across the ground. So we need to reduce the manufacture of new planes and air travel both by 90% or at least 80%. We need to reduce the manufacture of new helicopters by 
because that's just, you know, in so far as helicopters are used for military purposes, 80 or 90 percent percent of that is completely unnecessary. It does not exist for the well-being of people. It exists because a few powerful people can make a profit from it. We need to reduce new roads by 90%, reduce new roads by 90%, reduce new roads by 90%. Highways, highways, building the highway. When are we going to build another highway? When are we going to add another lane? Every time we turn around, they're tearing up the highway to put in another lane. And yet when it comes to building a train, oh gosh, we don't know how to do that. So in America, we can put a man on the moon, but we don't know how to build a train system. Here's how we know that we could build a train system if we wanted to. The way that we know this is that, you know, going back to the 40s and 50s, we've been spending on automobile-related transportation to the tune of 100 to 1 vis-a-vis trains and buses. So on the one hand, you have cars and trucks. On the other hand, you have trains and buses. We've been spending on cars and trucks at 100 times the amount we've spent on uh, on trains and buses. It need not be that way. We need to reverse that ratio. We need to be spending our money on trains and buses instead of on cars. Everybody has this individualized transportation unit, several thousand pounds of metal, vinyl, and plastic because you need to go to the grocery, several thousand pounds of metal, vinyl, and plastic because you need to go to work. It need not be that way. And yet when the government is called upon to build a train system or have more buses, like, we don't even know how to do that. Gosh, I'm not sure if anybody would ride the train. Well, give them a frickin' chance. And the, the way you give them a chance is by spending money, on first, on buses. So you spend money on bus stations. There should be a conveniently located bus station on the east end of Louisville and on the west end of Lexington so that people can go cheaply, conveniently from Louisville to Lexington and from Louisville to Indianapolis and from Louisville to Nashville. We could do that easily and it would be a fraction of the cost. But no, we have to have our individualized transportation units several thousand pounds of metal, vinyl, and plastic just because we need to go to the grocery or go to work. So what we've been talking about is just say no to constant extraction, manufacturing, and construction. And it says all this is possible when we prioritize people, not profits. All of the above items serve profit, not people. All of the above items are a net drain on our people and our planet. We have this many new cars, roads, buildings, and pipelines because of profits, not people. Because profits, not people, make these decisions. How do we get to a place where we allow profits to make all of our decisions for us? How do we, how do we get to a place where we allow plutocrats to make all of our decisions for us. I try to avoid the word capitalism, usually, often, because it means different things to different people. But plutocracy is what we really want to avoid. Plutocracy is where a few people make our decisions for us. 
They tell us we're free because there's no better slave than the one who thinks he's free. There's no better slave than the one who thinks, my, we have all these choices, choices, consumer choices. But what we forget or what we fail to observe is within those choices, uh, there's a narrow range of things we can choose from. We, if we want transportation, we can choose a Ford car or a Toyota car, but we have to choose a car. We don't have the choice to choose surface mass transit. We don't have the choice to choose buses and trains. So they want the choices to be within a narrow range of things that are profitable for them, profitable for the plutocrats. It needs to change, it can change, and it will change if we value our future. Of course we value our future, but the powers that be, the ruling elites, are good at keeping us real busy, real distracted. Sometimes they're good at keeping us sick and tired because people that are sick need a solution to that, and that costs money. And that's when we pay money to the oligarchs. And people that are tired need a solution to that, and that's when we pay money to the oligarchs. So I've got just a few minutes. Let me leave you with some things to think about. So what I've tried to do is, for one thing, defend the idea of socialism. We've been so indoctrinated. I mean, I'm a child of the Cold War. I was born in 1963. I was born when the Russians were still pointing missiles at us, and they're still pointing missiles at us. Notice how the Cold War didn't go away when the Soviet Union was no longer communist. The point is that an empire needs enemies or an empire has enemies because people want to be free. The U.S. is an empire. People all over the world are doing their best to oppose the American empire because the American empire takes away their freedom, and the American empire takes away the freedom of people, of its own people. But you need an empire to make people, you know, you need to get people all agitated thinking the communists are going to come and get us if we don't, you know, have all this military buildup. And you need an empire that controls the airwaves so that we have no choice. If we want to turn on the TV, you have to look at you know, commercials for stuff that we don't need. But we need, uh, you, know, you know, the empire wants us to be involved in an economy that's focused on production and, and consumption. Produce, produce, produce. It's like Biden's climate plan says, we can create whole new industries. Well, maybe we don't need to create whole new industries. Or the Biden climate plan says technology is going to save us. It doesn't say those very words, but always technology. We, we're going to give farmers the latest technologies. Well, maybe farmers don't need the latest technologies. Maybe they need land and they need time and they need a community and they need a market. Instead of thinking in terms of whole new industries, I like thinking in terms of a whole new world. We have an opportunity to create a whole new world. We have an opportunity to create a world in which our economy is driven by the need to care for what we have. The need to care for our people, the elderly, the sick, the young, the disabled, learners, even people that are strong need some need care to a great extent. Nobody is so strong that they don't need care. So we need to center our economy based on care of people, 
care of nature and care of our vital systems. Nature is going to deliver to us much of what we need if we will allow it. Nature will deliver, you know, nature will help us grow our forests and will, nature will provide for us clean waterways if we will allow it. And we need to care for people, nature, and our vital systems. Our vital systems include our farms, our waterways, our transportation, our communication, and our communities. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. Thank you.